Hey, my name is Zach Silk. It's been a while since I've been on the podcast. I'm the president of Civic Ventures, and I'm excited to be talking today with one of my old friends and favorite people in politics, Christina Uribe. Hi, Zach. For those of you who not had a pleasure to talk to Christina, she's one of my favorite politicos, uh, has been involved in political campaigns up and down the ticket, everything from local races to legislative races to congressional races and everything in between. And also, like me, has a lot of experience on ballot measures. And so we've spent a lot of time in the trenches. And I thought it'd be really interesting to talk to Christina about some of the ways that politics is playing out (laughs) here in uh, 2020. I think we first met in 2006. Does that ring a bell to you? I feel like, yes, maybe even a little bit before that congressional campaign when you were... Yeah, when we were doing state legislative races in Washington. Oh, my goodness. And back then, if I recall, you worked for Emily's List. Yeah, I had the Western states for Emily's List. Christina, sometimes people say that this is the most consequential election of our lifetimes. And normally I laugh about that because I don't remember an election that people didn't say that. But this might actually be the most consequential election of our lifetimes. Yeah, I tend to agree because that is something that we say every election. And to be honest, depending what's on the ballot, right, if things you care about, especially ballot measured, it, it is really consequential to your life, right? For Especially for, for most people who are impacted by jobs or their health care or will the government recognize their marriage? You know, it, it's pretty consequential. But for me on this one, it's it feels like... Yes, this is um, a, a pretty big moment, at least in my like you know my lifetime, and I, I think that's true for for many folks. The, in, in our lifetimes, this is probably the most consequential one. Our plan here is to talk a little bit about Christina's and my view of where things are in the political circumstance we find our, ourselves in, and then we're gonna we've asked you all what questions you would want to ask us. And we've gotten just a really a rich array of questions, and we're going to take as many as we can. And I thought we would start, Christina, by just talking about how do you see the current circumstance? Like, where are we in this election? We're about 100 days out. What do you see when you're looking out there? I think a lot of my brethren who've been doing all, all the work and, and everyone who's listening, activists and folks who've basically been engaged in this election since January 21st of 2017. (laughs) So for some people, this election started three plus years ago, right? I think for everyone else, it starts now. Yeah, I think in I I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm actually in favor maybe of shorter election seasons. (laughs) Uh, But I do think the campaign actually starts now everything else has been prelude but now it's the last three months and it this before the election this is really when it's when it's starting and i think we're starting from a, a place of where both the candidates and the campaigns and maybe everybody is in this scared of losing position i think both camps are are in that like scared of losing now how people react to that is very different as we know and i think that's what we're going to see maybe play out in uh, these last hundred days is someone who tends to be erratic and unpredictable and dangerous when scared of losing, including in ratings. Again, this is someone who deals in measuring their success by ratings and applause, and that is very dangerous as as we've seen. And then, you know, Zach, you and I both talk about sports a lot. You know, I, I think 
well, we're here to win. So what will that take? Sure. No one wants to lose, but you can't operate from that perspective. Right. And so Mm -hmm. um, being overly cautious can contribute to losing. And so I think that's where folks will start to where this starts with the Biden folks. Will they be cautious because of being scared to lose or will they be aggressive and smart over these next hundred days? And then what does everyone else do outside of those campaigns? Because there's in this you know, day and age, there's a lot around the environment, the context we create for this campaign that's outside of their control as well. Yeah. And then one of the things that I think is important uh, for us to all kind of situate ourselves, you know, there's no question that, you know, we now have a plethora of polls and we have all these different services, whether it's Real Clear Politics or 538 that will aggregate them for you. And you can look at those trend lines and there's no doubt that Biden is ahead. But the real question is, he's ahead going in, but we're here now in the home stretch. I think the sports analogy would be, it's fine to be up in the third quarter, but the game doesn't end until the end of the fourth quarter. Right. <laughs> so, but simultaneous to that, how many times have we watched a sporting event where the team that's ahead in the third quarter gets cautious and takes their foot off the gas and starts playing cautiously, and that mm-hmm. allows your opponent back in. And I think that's certainly one of my great concerns. And I definitely feel like Democrats as a whole, uh, they often are, you know, they're playing not to, not to lose rather than playing mm-hmm. to win. And that's just a very dangerous mentality, particularly with a, for all of his faults, Trump is a wily opponent, and he would be happy to take advantage of that. Right. Like you can't pr- protect a lead, right? Especially when you know the the folks that you're dealing with. I think this is really important is like, I'm one of those when you are ahead, specifically around campaigns, like that's when you double down. Yeah, That's when you go harder because of what, you know, a Biden win could mean more than the presidency. You and I have been on the opposite side, you know, have been on, on the losing side on occasion. And I always just think, you know, it was a different time. But in 2010, I was working on an independent effort to try and save the House. We were unsuccessful, uh, the House of Representatives. But what I witnessed during that was the waterfront just kept moving away from us, where by the end, we were trying to protect relatively safe Democratic seats in Massachusetts, right? And that's because the Republicans had just shifted and continued to spend and and spend in places that seemed unwinnable before. And so I do think like when momentum's on your side, or if you have a lead, that's actually when you should double down, increase kind of the where you're thinking around what's possible. Like that is not where we should be cautious, but we should be expansive in like, what is possible? How many state legislatures can we win back in in 2020? How many US, you know, it's not just at the federal level, we've learned anything this year is how much state and local governments matter. And that's where people kind of live and breathe this as well. Like, let's not be cautious. We need to double down. I am in favor of running up the score. I am not one of those people who thinks when you're ahead by three touchdowns in the fourth quarter that you shouldn't go for, you know, another touch. Absolutely. No, this is when you run up the score. This is absolutely what I think we should be doing. We talk a lot about economics on this podcast, and there was an old phrase was bandied about in, in the 1992 race by James Carville, a, a fellow politico. And he, you know, he, he famously said, it's the economy, stupid. I'm curious, do you think that still holds this, this notion? I was going to ask you that. I think it depends on what we mean by the economy now, yeah, right? So mm-hmm. I do think that's true, but what do we mean by the economy? So for me, it's like 
yep, people are out of work and that's going to continue to grow, right? And sadly, in, in the next month or two, people are coming up against mortgage payments and rent payments and a real fear around housing loss and protections for people. This giving cash to folks, like maybe we should just continue to give people money um, so they have some kind of economic security. So I I do think it's, it is still the economy, Stu, but I just think, and and think this is a result of the work that folks like you and others have done around, like, let's be expansive about what that means, not the stock market, right? right. If I've learned anything from you, Zach, it is the economy is not the stock market. (laughs) I think people are getting that um, because that's further and further out of reach for for some people as well. So I I think it's how we talk about the economy and what it means to people's everyday lives, that if we centered that conversation, then it's absolutely about the economy. I'll let you pivot to uh, asking questions. We're going to take questions from uh, people who've asked us questions. So let's get to that. Okay. So there's this one question from Jordan, which is a lot, and I appreciate his thoughtfulness or her thoughtfulness. Why doesn't Joe Biden just tout a message that talks about how for the last 40 years, the GOP has sold us on trickle-down economics myth, which is based on a disproven philosophy that if you give money to the rich, the rich will put in industry, and that's all going to create jobs and trickle down to the rest of us and grow the economy, except for we know, you all know it best on on this podcast, that billionaires don't invest money, um, that money in jobs and other benefits to taxpayers, that it just benefits themselves and doesn't trickle down. And he goes on to really get into um, modern monetary theory and other things around growing the economy Jordan does but like so why isn't Joe Biden using that long message as part of his message on yeah and Dems in general I think is is what Jordan's asking too well first of all it's a great question Jordan and it is hard for candidates to to change the fundamental kind of philosophy of the party they're running for you know the 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 office they're running for and, and the party they're part of and so it is hard. I just want to say, you know, I, I am sympathetic for whether it was Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama. You know, they're running with received wisdom from the party and from the way that we understand economics in this country, which has been shaped, as Jordan notes, by 40 years of adhering to a very specific uh, economic worldview. The good news is we do know better. We better understand the way the economy really works. There was a long time when people centered the very wealthy and corporations in the economy, and we are changing that. We are now centering people. And you can see these experiments playing out in cities and states that are centering people in their policy. They're more resilient. They're more prosperous. And in places where you don't center people and you center the rich and powerful, you actually are less resilient and and, uh, less prosperous. The question is, how do you translate that kind of complex evolution on the economy to something that you can uh, make digestible for regular people in their living rooms, often in a 30-second television ad? <laughs> and that's hard. I will say that that is hard. And that's one of the kind of the arts of politics is how do you translate complex policy into digestible um, information. Let me say one quick thing, and I'd be curious about your experience with this, Christina. I think it's gotten better. I will say, you know, much to the credit of people who ran in this primary in particular, uh, with Elizabeth Warren at the lead and Bernie Sanders, but you even saw it in uh, other characters running, really changing the way we talked about the economy as Democrats. And I found that Joe Biden has really 
uh, leaning into that. He is rejecting this idea that it's the rich and powerful who drive the economy, and he's leaning into some policy making. You know, we still have more to see from him, but it's it's been more consistent and more consistently focused on people rather than the powerful than I think we've seen in a while. Do you agree with that? I do. And I think it's a result of what happens outside of the election. So even going back to what we talked about, like for some people, it started the day after. And I think one of the things we've learned is we need to create the conditions for change in the intervening elections, right? So you hear a lot about narrative, which is a word I sometimes struggle with, but it really is like the stories we tell. And part of that is like creating the conditions for when things like universal basic income come into our lexicon, whereas like that is more power, like people talking about that now, not, and actually, as you said, you know, some cities experimenting as well with different policies and concepts, like that is the work around shifting this 40-year kind of campaign by the GOP around trickle-down economics. Like that is the kind of culture and narrative that we're working against. And sometimes it could take a really long time, but then there are these what you know folks talk about as persuasion windows. Like we are in a window right now because yeah, of this fracture of a pandemic economic depression, and really, you know, the historical struggles of this country around racism, like all of those coming together at one time, like, so that fracture that's happened a little bit actually is a window, a persuasion window, I think. I think this is a moment where for people who've been working on these issues for decades, where decades can happen in weeks, where it is an opportunity for us, again, to really, um, as you said, like see candidates take some of these ideas and run with them, which maybe what have existed in a different scenario. But I do think that's the opportunity. And I do agree that we are making progress and we should actually sell it. Like well, the other thing we're working against, I'll just add really quickly, is the cynicism. Like we don't take a beat uh-huh. to celebrate our victories and we need to yep. do that because that's how people believe that participating is worth it. That's actually when people are like, oh, we can change the future by participating in it. Like when we actually lift up like some of the successes we've had and we don't do that enough and we need to. So I've got a question from Brian. It seems clear to him that this upcoming election could be a bloodbath for Republicans, something more akin to what happened in Watergate, where people were for a long time ashamed to call themselves a Republican. And he asked, do you think the political fallout will carry both into this election and then beyond? And maybe I should ask, do you think it'll be a bloodbath? Yeah, I was going to say, oh, Brian, <laughs> I, I mean, I am definitely an optimist, or else I would not be doing this work, a bit of a pragmatist as, as well. Those calibrate each other. I think the pendulums swing much faster now for a variety of reasons because of just access to information and, you know, Twitter and Facebook and TikTok, like there's just so much information and surround sound that happens in a way that didn't before. So I'm not convinced that it'll be the type of, you know, post Nixon, post Watergate realignment, but we have seen those big pendulum swings happen, but then they go right back in the other direction. So that's why I'm cautious on like, does it carry over to 2022? So I do think that's that opportunity where could we take back the U.S. Senate and um, win the presidency and hold on to the House and see some states win back state legislatures and 
Um, yeah, because I've seen it happen in the opposite direction in yeah. very recent memory. So I actually believe all of that is possible because I have seen it happen. And so I do believe it's possible. I'm not sure what it carries over to 2022, because as I've seen you talk a lot about, um, Zach and others, like this economic depression that we're facing down is likely still going to be around for whatever incoming administrations are going to be facing. And when we look at state governments and municipalities, like the people who are charged with coming in and cleaning up the mess usually have the hardest work. And is that rewarded two years later or three years or four years later when people are feeling better? I don't know. Yeah, I I agree. And I think one of the things to think about is, as Christina was saying, it used to be there were more long swings of the pendulum in which it would rest on one side and take kind of a a long while to go swing back the other way. Pendulum swings are quite swift now. And part of that is, you know, like it or not, we've kind of sorted ourselves into two pretty equally powerful and innovative uh, organized you know, movements. There's sort of, I mean, obviously there's some political parties, the Democrats and Republicans, but underneath that, as you've already talked about, Christina, there's this rich set of movement actors on both sides. And they spend a lot of time strategizing, thinking, thinking about the evolution of the movement and then its interface with the party. And we have counterparts in the conservative movement who are doing the same thing. And I know for a fact that there are young next generation Republicans thinking about how to change the party to be competitive after Trump. (laughs) And they're Mm -hmm. going to be very swift if Trump is defeated in changing and evolving. You know, it really is kind of an ecosystem where there's going to be a really fast evolution here. And I think it's hard to know where they'll go. And I, I look at it and I can see a world in which you actually have a highly functioning conservative party uh, that is really honestly reckoning with the problems we face in the 21st century and that we can debate about that. So that's one wing. (laughs) And then there's Mm -hmm. the other wing, which is basically a nationalist, racial animus, nationalist, kind of backwards looking and reactionary, which I I don't know which one will win. I mean, there's sort of, I don't know what, what to call it. There's sort of the you know, Tucker Carlson well represents the kind of white nationalist wing of, of the party, and he is pretty young and very yeah. influential. And then there are other characters in the party who I think would like to take it into the 21st century. And in fact, famously, they wrote that briefing after Mitt Romney lost, which was trying to get the party to evolve on a, a bunch of items to, to move it forward. And I'm not a fan of Marco Rubio, but he actually has said some fascinating things about worker power and the nature of the economy. And I would I could imagine a world in which a Republican Party was willing to have an honest debate with us about how to make the economy work better. But thank you so much for for that. Let's let's get on to a next question. We have one from Craig. So yeah. uh, this actually builds a little bit off what we were talking about, which is with so many cash-strapped cities and towns, how will they be able to afford to do vote by mail or put in place the proper precautions to ensure people are safe going to the polls, especially since we know from the federal government, they either refuse to help. And really, when we talk about federal government, it's really the U.S. Senate that is refusing to pass yes. anything meaningful. Um, and, and Trump, for sure, um, to the House has tried, but it's you know the U.S. Senate basically blocking anything on, on this front. So given the economic realities of trying to implement vote by mail and or make voting safe, how's that going to happen without additional resources? Yeah, I think, well, first and foremost, let's be very clear that this is a problem 
perpetrated by one particular party, which is really the, the Senate Republicans, Republicans writ large, but Senate Republicans in particular. There have been money allocated by the democratically controlled House. There's actually been some really good work that's been done in Republican-controlled states trying to fix this problem. As much as Trump wants to make vote by mail a partisan issue, in most of the country, it's not a partisan issue. In fact, there's a lot of states where they're very Republican states and they have excellent vote by mail systems and they want to use them. Um, yep. it, sound, it feels like the way that Trump talks about it, that this is bringing out Democrats, but actually the original vote by mail people, let's be clear, were old people and the military. Mm-hmm. So these are two very strong Republican voting blocks. Vote by mail used to be the primary way that they got an advantage in turnout. So this shouldn't be partisan. We should be able to figure this out. I will say I am encouraged by individual states and what they're doing, even Republican states. Ohio's doing some interesting things. Uh, I know Iowa just talked about they're going to go and mail uh, applications to everyone in the state. Um, Wisconsin uh, is doing... A variety of things, even though their state legislature is so, so tightly controlled by Republicans. It's sad to me that we are not seeing more action by the feds. I do think that if you're looking to take near-term action to help guarantee, you should be reaching out to your lawmakers, especially if you have a, a Republican senator in your state, to just communicate with them how crucial this is to protect the vote. It is the one thing that keeps me up at night about this election. There's a variety of things, but that's that's the one that makes me the most nervous is the inability for people to fully participate. Yeah, I would just add real quickly on that, which is it's I was nervous when um, so many people who are committed to expanding the vote, which we should enfranchise as many people as possible, make it as safe as possible for everyone. That vote by mail, though, also is not a panacea for this election, right. right? To your point, which is a, I know Washington state has it, but it doesn't happen overnight. Places that have done it didn't institute it in one election and they didn't do it in less than a hundred days. Right. So there's that in the fact that, you know, for indigenous and native communities, vote by mail presents tons of problems um, as it relates to having addresses um, versus PO boxes. And also we know that young people and people of color tend to have, their vote by mail ballots, you know, um, I don't want to say discarded, but there's always signature problems or challenges. And so that's the other thing. There's like larger rejection rates. So the other piece of that is we also have to demand, and I know there's efforts going on to get young people to sign up to be poll workers, right? Like for people who do have to vote early in person or on election day in person, which is still in a large amount of states, we just have to make that as as safe as possible. And I think really encourage as much early voting as possible, because we do know even in Wisconsin that, you know, Milwaukee had in their primary an 8% decline in turnout in more democratic areas. Um, and that is, I think what kept, keeps me up at night as well is just the like protecting the vote, counting every vote, but thinking about, I think someone said like, we can lose up to 5% election margin based on um, rejection rates of, of certain ballots. And that 5% margin is, is not something that I think we have. So um, yeah. I do agree. It's not a partisan issue, but I do worry about making sure that we don't think that even if we had vote by mail everywhere, that that is going to enfranchise everyone. Yeah. So I've got a really good two different listeners asked a version of this question. I'm going to kind of riff on both of them and ask you, Christina, I think you have a really good perspective on this. And I'll start with Alex and their articulation. Today, 
Protests are rightfully happening across the country. My wife and I are sitting at home wondering what we can do to help support meaningful change in how this country functions. They have a long list of things that they would like to see done differently, of course, some of which is related to, to racism and income inequality and the variety of things we talk about. The issue is that we do not feel equipped to counteract the Republican agenda. We live in a progressive liberal area, and obviously we vote in that vein. And our feeling is that our vote doesn't count towards change or moving Republicans. If we were going to do that, maybe do we have to vote? Do we have to move to a Republican area? I don't want to move to those states. <laughs> so what? A, hey, Alex, you are speaking a lot of people. You're speaking what is on a lot of people's minds. But yep. I don't want to move to those states. So what else can I do? Now, let me say real quick, uh, JD had a similar point. I really appreciate what you're doing, but I'd like to know what ideas you have for how I can help bring about change. Besides voting, and I can sign endless number of petitions, is there something else <laughs> that I can do as a, as a uh, concerned citizen? It's difficult to not feel helpless and frustrated about the lack of changes in our society. Thanks. And Please keep bringing your message to the people. Thank you, JD, and thank you, Alex. These are excellent questions. And Christina, I'm going to put it to you. What What do you reflect on when you hear that? You know, I was asked this question the night before the inauguration in 2017 by a, group, a room full of women, mostly, um, who work in tech and creative industries. And it was on the eve of the first Women's March and someone saying, like, is that even going to matter? And I think it gets to these questions as well, which is, Actually, first, I'm not going to tell anyone to move because I think you should live, if you have that freedom, to live in a community that reflects your values that you want to be a part of. And those of us who I, I think that's what everyone in this country wants. And so you shouldn't have to move um, to make an impact. And I think not thinking about the large systemic change on an like a day to day perspective, which is think showing up at a rally like for people who are impacted and struggling, it does make a difference to see people like in other parts of the country and other communities using their opportunity and maybe greater protections to like speak up and, and say something. It actually does make an impact when you're part of a community that might be more marginalized or disenfranchised. I tell people this all the time, like giving money, that is not inconsequential, especially if it's like $5 or $10. I know folks are like, what more can can I do like the way we fund lawsuits, the way we bail people out who are unjustly locked up either through protest or a criminal justice system that does not have justice in it. Like that is with funds. The organizers that you see going, you know, in the old days, going door to door in the pre-COVID, <laughs> but that are making calls and these young organizers that are doing this work on social media and through Zooms, like that all requires money. And I know, you know, for those of us who have it and who can give that, it does make a difference. Showing up at your city council meeting in a Zoom, I participated in my first school board meeting a few mm -hmm. weeks ago via Zoom. It's the highest turnout that our school board meeting had ever had. And it was around, you know, um, disinvesting from the police that are that were in our, our school district. And there was like 800 people who participated and our school board did take that action. And that's what I mean around like celebrating those victories. Did that one action by our school board reform the entire criminal justice system and incarceration system in our country? No, but it made a difference for the kids in my school district. I can tell you that. And I think that's what it's important to remember. Um, and definitely want to hear your thoughts. But like, I said this to someone on just on bail reform, someone who's like, does it make a difference giving to these bail funds, which just reinforces like the system that doesn't work. And I was like, have you ever met someone 
who was just bailed out or who was incarcerated or someone who one family that's been freed from a detention center or someone who finally has health care that didn't have it before. Like these little actions actually make a difference in people's lives, which is what we've been talking about, right? There's like that's, and then that's how you create the conditions for the big systemic challenges that we need to take on in our country that will not just happen in DC. The fight for 15 is such a good reflection of that as well. Like the, those were fights happening in communities and victories happening in cities and towns across our country that then forced this larger conversation that goes back to kind of like trickle down to ec- economics right. doesn't work, right? Like, mm-hmm. so I just think like for everyone listening, like it actually does make a difference. Use this opportunity where we can't gather in person in as many ways as possible to like pay attention to what is happening with your city budget. What is happening with your school budget? What's happening at the state level? Um, if you and if you have money, like pick an organization, and it doesn't have to be national to send resources to or to give your time to. Yeah, as someone who's been in, impacted daily by you know the different challenges in our country, it really does make a difference and does help shift this larger narrative and does make the systemic change possible that we need in our country. First of all, I'm very sympathetic to both Alex and JD. It can feel very much like, what good does it do for me to vote for a, you know, you may live in a, in a city that has all Democrats, and you may live in a state that's blue, and you may feel like there's some, you know, that you need to move to Idaho to <laughs> help change the political makeup of Idaho. But, but the reality is, and I think, Christina, you said it so well, that there are things you can do right now, today, from home, socially distant, uh, appropriately taking good care of yourself, contributing matters. It doesn't have to be a lot of money. Christina said that so well. Find organizations you believe in. I promise you that those people who are being funded by that, they are working every single day to make the world a better place. And they're fighting for it. And they are worthy of your investment. And it you can, you know, pick and choose the ones that you believe in. Um, you know, I think that is extraordinarily important. Actions do matter. I don't believe in all of these silly petitions. There are a lot of silly <laughs> petitions out there. And yeah. they're really just there to like generate large email lists, um, but they don't actually have an impact. But if you pick the right organizations, they're figuring out how to translate mass communications into action. And they are employing people to go and communicate in the halls of power, whether it's at City Hall or at Congress. And there is positive impacts to your communicating. I know it doesn't always feel like it when you're clicking on that email, but participating, finding really effective organizations, following them. Honestly, all of the most meaningful change in this country has happened when it started at a local level. And it almost always involved some act of civic courage. And frequently that involved going into the streets, protesting and marching, going to a community meeting, participating in a Zoom call. (laughs) Those are things that actually do make a meaningful difference, you know, whether that is the fight for 15 or the fight for marriage equality or fight for civil rights or the fight for suffrage. All of these things started in these small places. Often those were on the surface. They looked like homogeneous places. That might have been blue. I mean, the fight for 15 started with strikes in New York, Chicago, and Seattle. Like, those are blue places. And now we have Amazon has $15 as its fundamental minimum wage, right? And the Democrat running for president 
is running on a $15 minimum wage. Those are things that can happen. And that's because of actions from people like you. Yeah. So Christina, I just wanted to ask one last question of you. So we talked about the 100 days. This is about when the election actually starts for most people. (laughs) What are you going to be looking for in the next 100 days? What are you going to be watching for? I'm thinking about what comes between election day 2020 and inauguration day 2021. I'm thinking about Zach, you're in Washington state. So like my mantra is count every vote. We won't know on election night. A functioning democracy wants to take the time to make sure we got it right. And we count every vote. I'm actually, I'm so focused on that. So what I'm looking for the next hundred days is like, making sure we get that story to take hold, to be honest, like the candidates are going to do what they want to do, what need to do and run their campaigns. And, you know, I'll I'll be watching that, but I'm really more looking at like, how do we ensure that everyone is prepared to know that we need to count every vote, ensure every vote is counted. It won't happen on election night. Reporters in Washington state know that in Colorado, in California, in Oregon, increasingly in other states. And the public needs to be reassured of that. Like the fact that we don't know doesn't mean something is wrong. So that's what I'll be watching for is how we start to shift that in. Um, and I'm also worried about like a, a bad narrative taking hold on what happens between election day and inauguration day. That's what I'll be looking for. People's excitement around the election as well, because I do think this is when people start to get engaged and I'll be interested in that. So those three things. I agree with that 100 uh, percent. Those are really important and probably among the most consequential things. Well, it's not just simply who's going to win the election, but there's going to be a spin war like we have not seen in, mm-hmm. I guess, maybe since Bush v. Gore in Gore. 2000, yep. but it's going to be similar to that. And I think we all need to be prepared. And then, as someone was noting earlier, I'm really curious to see how the Biden team and all the Democrats start thinking about running on and talking about the economy in the next 100 days, because as voters tune in, this is when their messaging is going to be most impactful. And I'm hoping that they really center people and talk about a new way to think about the economy. So I'll be watching for that too. Mm-hmm. Hey, Christina, what a pleasure. It was awesome this to talk so to great. you. so yeah. great. We did this on the day that both of our teams are playing, um, are having opening night too in, in baseball, as crazy as that is. So I take that as a good omen. It, me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's all starting now. It all starts today. It all starts yep. today. Yep. <laughs> Throw out the first pitch. Let's go. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.